Tonight on Farage, as the pumps run dry in much of the country, I'm going to be asking, is rationing very close? And indeed, is the DVLA holding the country to ransom? We'll go to the seaside. Yes, Brighton, where Labour are not having a very nice time beside the seaside. And on Talking Pints, king of the 90s raves, actor and producer Terry Stone. It was about 7.30 on Friday morning. I went to the local petrol station uh, to buy newspapers and a few essentials. I didn't go to fill the car up, although if I'd known what was coming, I probably would have done. And somebody complained vociferously, uh, using quite bad language, about where I'd parked. Now, they might have had a point, but I was quite surprised by the level of aggression. Now, I do sometimes get Remainers talking to me like that, but what I was witnessing was the beginning of the great fuel panic. Because by the end of the day, there were huge queues forming everywhere. And you only had to look at the newspaper stands to realise why. Big, screaming, tabloid headlines that the pumps were running dry. All to do with a shortage of drivers. Now, I think the truth of it is that, actually, uh, most petrol stations are getting the same amounts of petrol and diesel this week as they had last week. But in an act of collective selfishness, people who rarely use their cars decided they'd fill the car up in any jerry can or other receptacle they could find. I felt very sorry uh, for those who needed to get to hospitals, those who were working as nurses, doctors, uh, and those who really needed fuel uh, because very selfish people were getting in their way. So it's now a situation where most most of our stations have run dry. Uh, they will get filled up again over the course of the next 48 hours, and no doubt the queues will immediately form. So I wonder, are we headed towards petrol rationing? It sounds extreme. It sounds radical. It sounds the kind of thing that happens only in wartime or if you have a communist government. But already, Surrey County Council, on the verge of declaring a major incident, and prioritising certain people to get fuel. And indeed, rationing has already started at fuel stations who are limiting drivers when they've got fuel to 30, 35 or 40 pounds worth. I very much hope we don't head towards rationing. I hope some sanity comes back in. But underneath all of this is a bigger problem, a shortage of HGV drivers across the board, not just those qualified uh, to carry dangerous substances like fuel. And somehow, the government, who've been completely asleep at the wheel, only in the last 48 hours do we hear Grant Shapps, the minister responsible, saying, well, we'll call in the army or we'll do something. The truth of it is, the biggest problem here is the DVLA, who have been working from home, who also had a strike in August. That was jolly helpful, wasn't it? Um, and we've got a backlog of about 40,000 people who are yet to be processed through the system as HGV drivers. And I do really feel that inefficiency at the DVLA is holding this country to ransom. Well, that's what I think. Tell me what you think. Do you think we should have petrol rationing? Give me your thoughts, gbviews at gbnews.uk. And as ever, you can send in your questions to Barrage the Farage, which I'll look at right at the end of the show. Now, joining me to discuss some of this is the founder of Fair Fuel UK. What better organisation could I talk to in these circumstances? Howard Cox. Howard, 
welcome again to the programme. We, we saw a crisis 20 years ago when yes. Farmers for Action blockaded uh, some of the refineries, but have you ever seen panic on the forecourts like this? No, not at all. This is unbelievable. And I'm afraid the government have to take fully the blame for this, uh, Nigel, because, you know, you don't come out and say two or three days, Grant Shapps saying, don't panic, there's plenty of fuel in the pipeline. To, uh, and guess what? What do people do? They panic. It's, they're, they're like lemons. Everyone does that sort of thing. I even got a, uh, a call from a garage owner this morning who eventually sent me an email of a receipt of a person left behind for 90p just to top up. That's what he did. That's the sort of mentality. And if everyone listening to this and, and, and watching this, please recognise that you don't have to fill up to the brim. You don't need to drive the 400 miles of fuel. Just fill up halfway or even three, uh, a quarter of the way. That would be fairer and will benefit everyone. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, the truth of it is, had those, had those paper headlines screamed the banks are running out of money, there'd have been a run on the banks, wouldn't there? Or if they'd said baked beans... I think the government were asleep at the wheel. We can all see these yes. problems coming weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Um, they have opened up for 5,000 people from overseas to apply for visas, but given there are driver shortages across the whole of Europe, I'm not sure that solves anything. My feeling, and, and there are some, of course, stupidly trying to blame Brexit, which has very little to do with it, but my feeling is, and maybe I'm being harsh here, Howard, but my feeling is that the DVLA have proved themselves to be not fit for purpose, and that's where the real logjam is. Absolutely right, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head. The, 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 one of the issues we're having here is we, we told... It, but there's been a HGV driver shortage since 2005. It's grown and grown and grown. About five years ago, before the referendum, we were looking at 40 or 50,000. It's now 100,000. Yeah. And the simple thing is the RHA and Logistics UK, which is... Was, that was formerly known as the FTA, they back Fairfield UK, and we've been shouting at all the transport ministers, will you do something about it? And nothing. The civil servants who actually process these various things, all they've done is put obstacles in the way, CPC certificates. Drivers who've been driving for 30 years have been asked to take more tests. What more do they have to prove? They've been driving for 30 years, and they've been asked to pay more money to take specific tests, CPC tests. These are the sorts of things that the bureaucrats are doing. They have no idea what they've, uh, 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 well, what we've arrived at. It's been Armageddon in the last two days. And to cut a long story short, it's fully the government's fault. No one else's, it's the government's fault. And they can solve this. I'm afraid in the short term, we probably will have to get the army out to actually, there's loads of tankers sitting there. Let's put HGV military drivers who've all, like they, they transport dangerous goods and, and explosives and petrol, all those yeah. sorts of things. We should use them. Yeah, I think there may be some licensing issues, but I'll talk in a minute uh, to somebody yeah. more, intimately, more intimately involved in that. Um, but rationing, the prospect of rationing. Effectively, the garages that have fuel are rationing already. Surrey County Council, yes. will, Surrey County Council are going to consider overnight giving fuel priority to certain key workers. Are we heading towards rationing, in your opinion, Howard, or do you think that actually... This will sort itself out by Friday, as the deliveries will be pretty much as they were last week and people won't be filling up anymore. My instincts tell me that it will be sorted out by Friday. And I've been contacted by several refineries and some wholesalers saying, we are going up there, we are building things up, they're putting extra shifts on, getting people to actually deliver, etc. The problem we do still have is, once you quite rightly pointed out, Nigel, is once they know there's petrol in a garage, you watch the queues form. 
and that, and I'm afraid the fuel will be sold 20 times quicker than normal. That's what we can't legislate. We've got to get this mindset on people. You do not have to fill your tank. To put 90p of fuel in and park your car in a garage knowing you've got 400 miles of fuel in your car is just asinine. It's no, ridiculous. It's been, some of it's been selfish beyond belief. Howard, thank you for joining us. Well, joining me now is traffic manager and HGV, HGV driver Chris Proctor. Chris, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Now, some are saying just send the army in and it'll all be very easy, but as I understand it, there is an ADR licence that is needed to drive fuel. There is a, a PDP certificate. It isn't just an HGV licence that's needed here, is it? Correct, yeah. You, you do have to have a hazmat, uh, hazardous material licence, and it's, it's not so much about the fact that of what you're transporting. The main thing is you're transporting a movable liquid. So when you're driving a 44 tonnes full of liquid, that load will shift. You do need to know what you're doing, and it is a hazardous material. So... Yes, bring the army in makes a lot of common sense. They all have hazmat, or the majority have hazmat. Okay. We could utilise those people, but to start giving out fuel tankers to normal HGV drivers is probably not the best idea, to be fair. No, I'm, 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 I'm sure that's right. And if anything went wrong, the government, I mean, there would be hell to pay, and perhaps rightly. Now, I've been contacted, Chris, by a number of HGV drivers over the last couple of days who tell me that medical licences are completely blocked mm. down at the DVLA that the testing centres are tens of thousands behind and that there are applications, you know, piled... Well, I was going to say piled up on desks, but, of course, it's all on computers these days. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, are we, are we as a country, effectively, now being held to ransom by a DVLA that is proving itself not fit for purpose? Am I being unfair or is that what the HGV industry would agree with? Absolutely, 100% right. I mean, I work for a very large haulage company. We have a lot of drivers. We also have a lot of agency drivers. Um, I've heard, like you said earlier on to, to Howard, about Brexit being blamed. Utter rubbish. I, I've lost one driver because he's gone back to Poland. That is it. You know, I, I have a base of maybe 100 drivers a day. I have more drivers that cannot drive because they do not have a valid medical or do not have their licence back from the DVLA for three to four months now. And I've got more drivers that are coming up now. Don't get me wrong, during COVID, they were all given a year's grace. Thank you for that, brilliant. That helped us massively. But now COVID's, I won't say disappeared, but things are loosening up slightly. DVLA should be back at work. That is where the problem lies. There is a massive backlog of drivers who cannot drive because they're now not allowed to because they don't have the correct licensing for that. Yeah, I so, think, uh, you know, work from home, I think, is what it... Work from home is what it's called, isn't it? You know, and I don't think it really works, Chris. Chris, are you, are you, as an industry, and you're a big industry and a very strong industry, you know, how much communication are you in with Grant Shapps and why? Please tell me, why did he not <laughs> act more quickly? Or is it your fault? Is it your fault for not being an organised lobby and warning him about this in time? OK, Nigel, you know, you've been in politics long enough yourself. You know, I, I'm not just going to blame this government. I'm going to blame pretty much every government that's been in power. They have a habit of closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. But this time, the horse hasn't bolted. He's been back, had refreshment and buggered off for a coffee with his mates again. It's ridiculous. But this is time and time again where the politicians do this. They don't act. You know, they listen to these so-called experts. Well, I'm sorry, what are they experts in? Because it's clearly not the, the industry that they're advising the politicians on, yeah. or they just don't listen and don't act. Either way, things need to change. You know, there's so many issues going on, not just in the haulage industry, 
but in general, and the politicians just don't act on it. They talk, they talk, but they do nothing. And I think, quite frankly, that the, the, the general public, quite frankly, had enough. It's time that things started to change in this country because we are getting ransacked by Europe and we're getting ransacked by the lack of action from our politicians and things need to change. Well, you couldn't have put that more clearly or with more passion, Chris Proctor. Thank you for joining me. Now, somebody who's got, I think, not the complete solution to the problem, but maybe a partial solution to the problem, and it's uh, an MP who is thinking outside the box, which is quite unusual for MPs these days. Perhaps I've become too cynical. But the MP for Buckingham, Greg Smith, is joining me now. Greg, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. Now, I know that you're a long-term anti-HS2 campaigner, as indeed, Greg, am I. Um, but I'm not going to discuss with you tonight the merits or demerits of HS2, but you had a little idea about HS2 and how perhaps uh, that project could be turned to help us in this current crisis. Yeah, well, HS2 is a horrendous project costing billions of pounds, uh, but I've got 19 miles of it through my constituency, a constituency you know well, Nigel, yep. uh, that sees 600 HGV movements every single day. Now, multiply that out across the entirety of phase one from Euston up to Birmingham, and that's thousands of HGV movements. These are all HGV drivers paid for by us, the British taxpayer. They are committed to the HS2 project only because the Department of Transport has paid them to do so. So let's get them off HS2, let's stop building HS2 and put all those HGV drivers into the supply chain, getting fuel to the petrol stations for those that are used to transporting fuel and onto food supplies for those that, that don't have the necessary qualifications for moving liquid. Yes, I mean, they are HGV uh, registered. Some of them will have the relevant safety okay. certificates. Some of them okay. would need to do a, you know, a test or two. Um, but I have to tell you, Greg, I think this is an absolutely brilliant idea. It is blue sky thinking, completely out of the box. Um, is there any support for your idea? Uh, you've got a bit of... Uh, have, is there some child interference there? It, it, it's, it's one of those moments where... It's... <laughs> Well, just carry on and pretend nothing's happened. I'm going to do just one last quick question, as you've clearly got a few distractions. I think the idea is a terrific idea. As you say, HS2 is being paid for by the taxpayer. There is a much more urgent priority. And you make the point. Thousands of HGV movements every day. Boy, that could help in this crisis. Are you gaining any... Apart from this programme, are you gaining any traction for the idea? Well, I keep pushing it. I keep pushing it with the Department for Transport. I keep pushing it on not just GB News, but other media outlets through the course of the day. I think it's absolutely essential that, that we pull on every resource we possibly can to get fuel into the filling stations. Uh, I know that from my own constituency, there have been some pretty big queues uh, in a lot of those stations. Yeah. Others that did get deliveries overnight uh, have been selling fuel, but under high demand. Now, we've all got a calm down a bit and if we don't need fuel not go and get it but of fundamentally course. we've got to get the supply chain working again we've got all these thousands of hgv drivers building a project that nobody wants let's put them yeah. to some use well look go and push this idea hard to grant shaps make sure we can't avoid you at the party conference next week and come back and tell us how you got on greg thank you for joining us Good luck with your paternal duties, which clearly are very, very urgent. Well, that was Greg Smith. He was slightly interrupted, but what a brilliant idea. Simple. It would make a bit of a difference.
Now, live broadcasting always brings the most astonishing risks. Things go wrong. You have technical failures, and much of the media so enjoyed the technical difficulties that GB News had when it launched, uh, and indeed we came under a fair bit of pressure. Some people got very stressed by the whole experience. On Saturday, Channel 4 News went off air for a complete hour. So you see, it can happen to anybody. But a really big broadcasting success. Today is GB News's first big outside broadcast. It's from the Labour Party conference. Any of you that have watched the coverage during the day, I think, would have been impressed by it. It's been professional. It's been really good. And right front and centre of the whole thing has been our political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good evening. Yeah, hello, Nigel. As you say, welcome to Brighton, where we are at the Labour Party conference. Uh, delegates, Labour members, members of the press, lobbyists, all here at party conference uh, to try and get a gist of where Labour are at and what they've got planned for the next couple of years. This is a party, of course, that frankly wants to get into government. Was that help today? Well, in rather dramatic fas fashion, a shadow... Minister within the government, Andy McDowell, uh, McDonald, sorry, uh, very dramatically quit uh, when he decided to quit the shadow cabinet over what he calls a terrible disaster of a Labour policy on the minimum wage. He argued uh, that it's something that he could not back. They wanted it to be 15 quid rather than £10, uh, Nigel. And he also uh, said that Keir Starmer's leadership at the moment was dividing the party, that he was not committing by some of the pledges uh, that he had committed himself to when he stood as Labour leader. Now, as I say, this is all rather dramatic in many regards. It's pretty infrequent that a shadow minister or a minister resigns during their own party conference. Will it disappoint uh, the Labour Party to a large degree, that leadership? I'm not entirely sure it will, uh, given he's one of the last remaining Corbynistas in the shadow uh, cabinet. But does it send out the right message that, again, this party doesn't look very disciplined or united? It possibly does. It's not a message I think the party would want, as I say, in the middle of a conference in which they're trying to convince the public they have got a plan for the future. And it is a distraction uh, for some of the key messages that the Labour have been trying to get yeah. out there on big policy platforms. Today we heard from uh, Rachel Reeves. She's the shadow uh, Chancellor, and she was on stage, Nigel, talking about how uh, she wanted to uh, abolish things like charitable status for private schools. So she wanted Jeff Bezos at Amazon to pay more money. And also, how she wanted to get rid of business rates while at the same time pumping tens of billions of pounds into making the economy greener. Let's have a listen to what she had to say. Invest in good jobs in the green industries of the future. Gigafactories to build batteries for electric vehicles. A thriving hydrogen industry. Offshore wind with turbines actually made in Britain. Planting trees and building flood defences keeping homes warm and getting energy bills down. I can announce today Labour's Climate Investment Pledge, an additional £28 billion of capital investment in our country's green transition for each and every year of this decade. So today we are calling on government to freeze business rates next year, to increase the threshold for small business rates relief, giving small and medium-sized businesses in all sectors, a discount next year. And conference, to pay for those measures, the government should increase the digital services tax 
to 12% in the next year. When bricks and mortar high street businesses are taxed more heavily than online giants. High street businesses pay over a third of business rates, despite making up only 15% of our overall economy. But when Amazon's revenues went up by nearly £2 billion last year, how much did their taxes go up by? Less than 1%. Conference, if you can afford to fly to the moon, then you can afford to pay your taxes here on planet Earth. Well, full marks to Rachel Reeves. That was a very, very good line. The best line of the conference so far. Uh, but, Darren, my observation of this is this is the first Labour conference, of course, since 2019 because of the pandemic. The party had a catastrophic general election. And all I'm seeing is rows because the deputy leader calls the Tories scum and, and, and many other words too. Uh, we have a huge ongoing debate about trans rights. We now have a front bench resignation. Um, and the big messages just aren't getting out to the public at all. So can Keir Starmer save the Labour Party in Brighton or are they in for another year or two in the complete political wilderness? I think that's the key thing, isn't it? And that is why his speech on Wednesday, Nigel, is so important in many regards. You're right in pointing out, you know, on Saturday, the first day of this conference, they were talking about changing Labour Party rules internally for whether well, it was a good idea about how the leader and the deputy leader were elected. Now, frankly, Keir Starmer's got a bit of a win on that, but it's not really going to translate uh, to the public. You add on to what Angela Rayner had to say, which she stoked up again today with a whole series of tweets. You've got this resignation uh, this evening. It is a distraction. It means that trying to get Labour's message out there to the public is proving more uh, difficult. However, you know, is this an opportune moment for Labour? You would have thought so. Look at those images that we've seen today of people queuing up yet again for petrol. The conversation you've just had. In many ways, Labour need to kind of capitalise, I think, essentially on that. But they also need to lay out a policy platform for why they should be elected in an election, Nigel, that frankly could come in less than two years time. But the other big thing is, is Keir Starmer really in charge of this party? Does he have a proper grip of the Labour Party. I mean, you look at Boris Johnson runs the Conservative Party. There's no doubt about who is leading that party here. We've heard from Andy Burnham, Angela Rayner and others in the last couple of days, again, kind of around the edges, sniping at the leader. And that's not a great place to be in the end. And that is why, as I say, that speech on Wednesday is going to be so key. Absolutely. Darren, thank you very much indeed. And great coverage from Darren McCaffrey from Brighton all day today. And I take no pleasure at all in seeing Labour in this mess because democracy needs a healthy, active opposition. And at the moment, it's a series of mixed messages and arguments. In a moment, we'll discuss what happened at Dover yesterday. Another very large number of people crossing the channel. And whilst the Home Office will not confirm the figures. We're going to call it here on GB News tonight that double the number have now arrived in this country across the channel than did in the whole of 2020. In some ways, it's hard to believe that in 2021, in this developed country called the United Kingdom, we're talking about the prospect of petrol being rationed, but it really isn't impossible. 
I asked for some of your comments on this, and Trevor on email says to me, the petrol stations need to dedicate one of their pumps for the emergency services and NHS staff only. Well, I think that is what Surrey County Council are going to be talking about over the course of the next 24 hours. Pete says, for months I've seen signs outside local companies stating they're looking for HGV drivers. So the signs were always there. Look, you know, as someone said, we had a sort of 50,000 shortage um, of drivers back in 2015. And I do wonder, actually, whether many people just find being an HGV driver a pretty unattractive job. Unsociable, uh, being forced to sleep, uh, you know, in the cab, on the side of motorways all over Europe and perhaps often in circumstances that aren't very safe. And it's not really been particularly well paid. That situation, I think, is changing. That perhaps is one good thing that can come out of this. Also, government changes to IR35 rules have made a lot of people say, hey, do you know what, I just can't be bothered with it. But there are out there a huge number of retired or recently retired HGV drivers who could be tempted back. But if the DVLA sit on applications for months, we're just not going to get through this without further crises in other sectors. Ian on email says, same experience in 1974, people filling up each time they went past the filling station, people were driving around with 95% full tanks. The government issued ration books which were never used. Yeah, I do vaguely remember that. Well, uh, we may be getting a form of that very, very soon. And indeed, if you're lucky enough tonight, um, and I do know that one of my... I won't say which one, but one of my local petrol stations within a reasonable geographical radius of where I live, they are getting a tanker delivery at 7.30 tonight. So I am planning, I am planning, because I'm actually down on the red now. Um, I, am, <laughs> I should have got the fuel on Friday. I am planning to go and fill up, um, but that's not a selfish act. It's because the car is running low. But you know what I'll do? I'll put half a tank in, not a full tank in. Pauline says, isn't it strange that ministers can ask retired HGV drivers to come out of retirement to help with the current delivery problems? Would it be possible for the same ministers to ask their own staff at the DVLA to return to normal working so we can get HGV licences renewed and returned? Look, you know, it, this is a problem that was coming down the tracks very clearly and the government have been, to use the driving analogy, found asleep at the wheel. Of that, I have no doubt whatsoever. And DVLA have got to be kicked into shape, PDQ. Now, before the break, I said with confidence that despite the fact there were no official figures from the Home Office as to the numbers that crossed the English Channel yesterday, that we were calling it... It's crossing in small boats. We have surpassed it by some margin yesterday... Uh, crossing the channel in 22 separate boats were 669 migrants. That means that so far this year, Nigel, 17,085 people yep. have crossed the English Channel in small boats. It was 8,417 for the whole of last year. Uh, so we've uh, well exceeded uh, that total. And there are still a few months to go. OK, the weather conditions are going to worsen. The numbers crossing will slow down a bit, but we saw it last year. They were still coming. When weather conditions improved a bit, they would still push off from France and head ashore. And we got uh, one of our uh, stringers down in uh, on the Kent coast, was out filming for us yesterday, Nigel. I got lots of footage of these boats coming ashore. This is yeah, a landing. The boat yeah. landed at St Margaret's Bay. Yeah. These some of 42 
people who were stuffed onto that boat. Uh, they were sitting on the beach waiting for border force officers to arrive. And they're all men? Well, you can see there, yeah, I mean, they look to be all men. All young men. All young men. Yeah, which I, mean, I, which I think... I think so far this year, sort of ninety percent or so. And there's the boat, obviously, on the beach. Yeah. 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 No, that, you're, you're absolutely right. We do see, uh, from time to time, there are some boats that actually have a higher percentage of women and children mm. on board. Yeah. But the vast majority of these vessels that come across, sometimes it's a hundred percent. Often it's a hundred percent male uh, on board these vessels. Yeah. So I think you're right up about uh, the high eighties, ninety percent. Yeah are men that are, are yeah. making this well, journey across. I called this back in March and April. I said it would be over 20,000 this year because I could see how the boats had changed, how much bigger they were. And, well, it's going to be much, much, much more than 20,000. Lots of talk of turning the boats around, but that's not an easy thing to do with dinghies, and we talked about that last week, uh, about the threat of people throwing themselves in the sea and all the rest of it. And still, just sort of finish on this subject, as I understand it, not a single person has been deported so far this year that came across the English Channel. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, it's, a, it's often a long process just because of the way that the asylum systems work and the ability of those who are in the asylum system, if they are rejected, they can appeal, and not just once, but multiple times. So what often happens is that this process doesn't just last weeks or months, it can actually last years in some cases. So well, it's a very, very slow process. Well, there is... Frustrating for everyone, I think. Oh, and, and there is growing anger about this around the country, and this is rising up the political gender in terms of voters' concerns, particularly those that voted Conservative in 2019. Now, the other uh, issue uh, that you're responsible for here at GB News uh, that is also driving people bonkers is not bad enough that we have these huge queues, gridlocking roads where there is a petrol station open. But just to add to all of that, our friends at Insulate Britain have been at it again, haven't they? Piling on the misery this time back on the M25. Now, this was a, a bit of a surprise, I think, for the authorities as well, because you remember last week, uh, Grant Shapps, the Department of Transport and his officials yeah. managed to get this injunction banning protesters from blockading either the orbital motorway or those feeder lanes into the motorway, the slip roads and the roundabouts. And, of course, if they breached this injunction, they were potentially in contempt of court. Right, yes. And that did seem to work because for a few days there was no more blockades uh, around the M25. And, in fact, on Friday, they moved their attention to the ferry port at Dover as if they haven't suffered enough it's in always, recent months. Do Dover's always in the news, isn't it? <laughs> Never for good things. But. Um, and, and, of course, in the light of that protest, which snarled things up again for a few hours, the government managed to secure another injunction around the A20 and those roads leading okay. to the port. But today they were back, junction 14 of the M25 around Heathrow, one of the busiest sections of the M25 at any given time. Mm. Uh, but today, of course, for a good few hours, really just nothing was moving uh, because of the protesters there. The police were 
on scene pretty quickly and managed to get one of the lanes open. They've arrested 53 people. Now, these people will be charged, obviously, with motoring offences, but much more serious for them, potentially, is this contempt of court. It's down to the judges now. Let's see the judges yeah. having granted that uh, injunction, meaning that if you break the injunction, you're in contempt of court. Let's see how seriously the judges treat this blatant uh, contempt of court. Uh, and, you know, it could potentially end in a prison term. The maximum penalty is two years in prison mm. and an unlimited fine. It won't be that. But mm. let's see if they decide well, to jail any of them. And of the previous people who were arrested and taken away over the... The clogged-up magistrate's court anyway, oh. it will be a very long time before they ever are in front of a magistrate. But in this case, when people are, are directly in breach of a court order, surely then the legal system can move more quickly. Yeah, and a high court court order at that. I'm waiting uh, to hear from the Department of Transport about how quickly they think they'll be able to get these 53 people up before a judge at the high court. When that happens, I think we definitely want to be there to see what the outcome is. We certainly is. do. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Well, Home Affairs, as ever, taking a very high profile. Now, in a moment, I'm joined by Terry Stone. He's an actor and producer, but he was the king of the raves in the 1990s. have to say, I don't know too much about 1990s raves. Maybe you don't either. Or perhaps you do, and you're sitting there quietly remembering what you were up to 30 years ago. Either way, Terry Stone is going to reveal all. Well, joining us tonight in the GB News pub for Talking Pints is Terry Stone. Terry, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Welcome. Very nice to see you. Now, you were, 30 years ago, organising uh, as a big wheel in what we can call the nighttime entertainment industry, or maybe the alternative nighttime <laughs> entertainment <laughs> industry. You were organising raves and they went on to become big. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I can remember Rave Nation, and I have to say, I was never particularly tempted right. uh, to go to them. But this became a massive thing, didn't it? I'm, I'm sure I've seen you at night. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure I've seen you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking a bit uh, younger then. But I mean, this became a massive thing. Where did the rave come from? Where did, where did the concept come from? Um, well, I, th I think, yeah, when you sort of rewind to sort of 1988 when the when the scene started off, um, I was. A sales rep at the time. I'd been upgraded from my job at McDonald's, and right. um, <laughs> I was living the dream. Um, obviously, the recession came, lost my job, um, and then everyone kept saying to me, "You've got to come to these raves. You've got to come to these dance parties." And at the time, you know, I was boxing, I was running. <clears throat> yeah, the last thing I wanted to do was to be dancing in the field taking drugs. So um, I was completely anti it. But which, which, by the way, is my impression of rave? Right, OK. Well, right. well, this wasn't technically... That was sort of before. Um, but I, the first rave I went to was probably um, in 1990 at a place called Stearns. And this is when it was, <clears throat> you know, legitimised and you had to have a licensed premises. So there was not really any dancing in fields. And um, I went to this rave. Now, <clears throat> my, my sort of experience of clubbing was sticky carpets, pints, kebabs and what they used to call the erection section, <laughs> you used to, you know... We're before the watershed, so be careful. OK, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean, the slow dances, the Luther yeah. Vandross music, and, um, you know, we... Um, that was my, my sort of, you know, thing about, you know, clubbing. And then when I went to this rave, 
There was probably 2,000 people in this room. There was lots of, you know, hot women. There was hardly any guys. And, but the guys that were there all wanted to be your friend. All the girls wanted to be your friend. And it was just like walking into this alternative reality where you just went, sign me up. So um, I sort of walked out of this rave and I just thought, I haven't got any money. I'm on the dole, obviously, so I lost my job because of the recession. <clears throat> and I thought, how can I go to these raves? And there was these people outside giving out flyers. So I said, oh, do you get paid for this? And they was like, yeah, you know, we get £10 a man. And I used to go out with sort of 15, 20 people. So quick thinking, I just thought, well, have you got a number? So I rang the guy and said, look, if I bring my friends to give these flyers out, can you get us in VIP and can we get paid? And he was like, sure. So I rang all my friends up and said, right, you've all got a new job. I'll get you in for free on me, but you'll give out the flyers. So I went from earning, I think I was on £20 a week on the dole mm -hmm. to getting £150 to £200 a night three or four times a week. So I come off the dole, um, set up my own flying business, was a ticket tout, and I, I was making, you know, thousands a month doing, just giving out bits of paper and selling tickets for raves. And then I then got a magazine called The Scene Magazine, which was this, it was like a sort of viz, private eye type yep. magazine, but for the rave scene. <clears throat> Started off as a black and white magazine, and then it went full, full colour, 128 pages in Smiths. Fast forward to sort of middle of 93, and then people were saying, well, you've got the flies, you've got the tickets, you've got the magazine, why don't you put a rave on? So I was like, that's a good idea. So then I started One Nation, yep. um, which became one of the biggest drum and bass um, events in the world. And it, 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 you know, people like DJ Fresh, Sigma, Andy C, all these huge, you know, people now that are sending out Wembley on their own, these big festivals, all started off for me. Um, and then three years after that, um, a friend of mine said, oh, the garage scene's taken off, let's do Garage Nation. So I did Garage Nation. Then I started winning awards. Um, but I'd say the late 90s, it changed and, and it became dangerous. And people, you know, started shooting each other and there was like knife, all the knife crime and gun crime you're hearing about now was still there back then. But obviously it was swept under the carpet. And, and you were making, but then you made a lot of money out of this. Well, I'd, I'd, I really could live in Nigeria. Yeah. <laughs> I could afford a few Bacardi's. <laughs> I'm sure you could. So why does something like that suddenly get so nasty? Well, I think, um, I think what happens when something's popular, I think, you know, you, you've seen it with a grime scene, you see it with this drill music scene, you know, I think as the which music... Is, which is horrendous. Yeah, but I think... I, I think... mean, the lyrics in this drill music are horrendous, aren't yeah. they? I mean, it's, it, you know... The, the, in, I think what happened with the garage scene was um, the crews sort of were formed and the garage music was nice, sexy music, everyone would dress up in suits, everyone would be drinking champagne. It was, it was you know, they used to call it like a, a sort of... They, they referred to it as a stush way of going out where you dressed up and you mm. made an effort <clears throat> and all the girls, you know, looked fantastic. And then I think when the crews come in, it become about five or six people sort of rapping and the music sped up and then... The music changed, and I think when the music changed, then the fashion changed, and then instead of people wearing a suit, they wear a hoodie, they wear tracksuits, they wear sunglasses, they wear trainers. So obviously you're more likely to get into a fight or cause problems when you're in a tracksuit than you are yeah. if you've got a two thousand pound suit on from Savile Row. So I think that was w w two of the factors, and then I think what happened was <clears throat> a lot of the clubs um, started to get redeveloped. So there was a lack of clubs, and I just think the respect, you know, in when I first started doing events, there was respect. You know, people would go out, someone trod on your foot, they'd say they were sorry, 
They want to be really? your friend. It was very polite. Polite raves. Very polite. And, and everyone wanted to be your friend, right? But I think the issue with... With, it become a bit sort of like, you know, I'm really cool, and you try on my shows as... And is that kind of what was happening in society, perhaps, as well? I think so. I think the, I think the big issue, you know, um, I think if you look at um, a lot of... And, and a lot of the people that went to these raves, there was a lot of, you know, people from all walks of life, but obviously the majority of them, I'd say, were probably from the working class. Mm. And I think, obviously, <clears throat> if, you're, if, you're, if you're from the working class and, you, and you're on a council estate and you're in a, you know, single-parent family or... You know, you're 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 on an estate, and you sort of see these crimes being committed, and you haven't got any money. Mm. You kind of fall into that lifestyle, and I think a lot of that was happening. And I don't know where yeah. this gangster stuff come from, but it seemed as if they were looking at America, and they were thinking, "Oh, this is really cool if I carry a gun and if I shoot someone." And and you know, these kids are sort of doing these things. I mean, w w there was one of my doormen who. Um, was an eighth Dan in martial arts, and he was probably the only person you wouldn't want to have a fight with. Um, and, and he was the guy that would be on the door, and he'd literally be like, you've got to stand there. And he's very polite. Um, and these two guys come up to the door. This was when I'd sold my business. It was at the Coliseum in Vauxhall. And they said, we're not queuing up. We're VIPs, we're walking in. He said, well, if you don't queue up, you're not coming in. And they just went, bang. And they shot him seven times. Really? Outside a club, for nothing. So when that sort of thing happens, you think... That there's, and these kids got caught they're probably doing 20 years in jail and they think they're cool and that, that, that message has got to stop and I don't know how you stop it, but... No, it's desperate stuff. So you reinvent yourself, Terry. You decide to become an actor. That's correct. But it was all, <laughs> it was all an act of fate. My whole life has been one, one, one set of uh, things after another. But how do you go from being on the dole... I get the rave thing. You right. saw an opportunity. You can yeah. make cash quickly. Yeah. You built it and developed it. I get that. You used right. your nouse, basically, yeah. Yeah. and did it effectively and well. But to suddenly go into acting and film... I mean, what do you know about film producing? How on um, earth do you get involved in at that? At the time, I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but now I know quite a lot. <laughs> You're clearly one of the great blaggers, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> um, I think what it is... Um, bear in mind, when I was doing these events, on a busy month, I'd be doing 20 events from 3,000 to 20,000. So I was doing these big events... I'm very organised, very disciplined, very hard-working. You know, I'm 24-7. So if someone says to me at one in the morning, we've yeah. got to do this, I'm doing it. I'm not crying yeah. saying, oh, no, it's one o'clock in the morning. Work from home. No, I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that is what, what everything is wrong with this country at the moment, because everyone's worked from home and they don't realise they've oh, actually got to so go back to work. So you're so out of date, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but, but what happened was I sold my business <clears throat> and my wife... Um, uh, she, she, she was eight months pregnant. <clears throat> and I remember this random phone call, someone said to me, I'm making a movie, do you want to be in it? So I went, yeah, why not? Be a laugh. So I went and done this little part in this film and I worked with, uh, there was a few actors, Martin Hancock from Coronation Street, Billy Murray was in EastEnders, um, Scott Welsh, she was in Snatch, there was a few of these characters and they was all saying, oh, you know, you've got a, a sort of natural thing for this, you should do it. And I was like, well, how do I become an actor? And they said, well, you've done your first job. <laughs> so you're, you've done better than most actors. So I said, OK, well, I'll get the video clip and I'll get some pictures done and I'll write a letter to some people saying, I'm an actor, I need representation, right? I sent out to 300 agents. I got three responses and then I got signed to one of them. So I walks in to see my wife and she's laying there on the bed. She's eight months pregnant. She's got the Maltesers on her stomach. And I said, babe, I said, I've got some good news. And she said, what's that? I said, I've worked out what I'm going to do. And she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to become an actor. And she spat her Maltesers out. <coughs> and she said, um, 
She said, are you taking drugs? <laughs> and I said, no. And she said, go over into the bathroom, look in the mirror. You're not Brad Pitt. <laughs> she said, have a, have a reality check. And I looked at her and I said, look, babe, I said, I really appreciate your honesty and, and supporting me, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> um, and then after that, I did what jobbing actors do, EastEnders, The Bill, yeah. um, some theatre stuff. Um, and then after a year of it, <laughs> I think I'd earned eight grand, so I realised I'd made a massive mistake. And I think if some So there were bit part roles you were getting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when when you look into it, 95% of all actors are unemployed. So <clears throat> I think when you know that, you start thinking to yourself, I've made a massive mistake. I was earning good money, doing all this mm. stuff, and I've now jumped from that and I'm at the bottom yeah. of the, the ladder again. Yeah. Um, and then I was with a friend and he just said to me, um, how's the acting going? I said, honestly, he said, honestly. I said, not very well. I said, I think my wife was right. <laughs> like she always is. Um, but um, she... Um, a good admission. But, 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 she, but, she, but, but he said, you know, what, what do you want to do? I said, really, I want to be in the movies. And he said, well, what, why don't you make one? I said, you've been organising these dance parties. It can't be mm. that difficult. So I think I'm a fit. I said, well, look, if I put 10 grand in, will you put 10 grand in? And he said, absolutely. So what we did was we went out to all our mates and said, look, we're going to make a film, it'd be a laugh, let's all put some money in. So we, f we crowdfunded for my friends, their first movie, um, and it was called One Man and His Dog, and it was a dog. <laughs> but it was like going to film school and now not to make a movie. So you learn from it? Exactly. All, all my bad experiences in life have been learning curves, so yeah. I don't take anything negative out of it. I just think, well, that was how not to do it. Yeah. But then the next film we did, <clears throat> we made, um, which was one of the first urban... British gangster films called Rolling with the Nines, mm. which was all about the, um, you know, at the time in, in, we made this in 2005, and at the time that's when the black on black gun crime had exploded, and, you know, it was all over the papers, and it, this is obviously, you know, the dual scene had just started off, and um, it got back to nominated that film, uh, one, one rain dance, um, and then that led to Rise of the Foot Soldier, which was yeah. the big film that a lot of people know me as. I normally wear a silly blonde wig. Um, there's a great meme of me, Trump, and Boris Johnson saying, spot the difference. So, <laughs> yeah, you've seen it. So, um, so I, th I don't know if they've, they've copied the hair or, or whether their hair was already like that. <laughs> but you've had some success with this. You made some money again out of this. Yeah, I mean, today, I've, I've, as an actor, I've been in 33 uh, films, TV shows, and as a producer, I've made 28. So I've done a lot. I've worked with all the studios, worked with Netflix, you know, so I've, I've done, you know, amazingly well in a short space of time, but I haven't really got started yet, Nigel. I'm sort of... Oh, really? Oh, this is it? You've just... You've, you've barely begun? I'm, I'm, I'm only 18 years in, yeah, so I've, I've... You know, I didn't expect it to take this long, but um, the new film that's in the cinemas now, um, that's been really good for me, cos that was the first film um, I played the lead role in, and I worked with Vinnie Jones and Keith Allen, so there's some great actors in there. Yeah. Um, and um, the film recently won Best Feature at the Marbella Film Festival. I won Best Actor, and here at the UK, it was number 10 in the box office. And if you look at the box office, it's all <coughs> 50, 100. Well, that was very funny. It reduced me to tears of laughter. Now, we've got to the last couple of minutes of the programme, and, yep, it's the Barrage the Farage section, where you send in your questions, and I do not get previous sight of them. One or two last week were pretty blooming difficult. Here goes. Here's John. Hi, Nigel. I agree with you about the need for more nuclear power stations, but do you share my concern about safety after Chernobyl and other nuclear accidents? Uh, Chernobyl was a complete disaster. Yes, absolutely no question about it. Uh, indeed, Fukushima uh, scared much of the world, scared Germany so much, they've stopped nuclear power completely. Quite why 
uh, a station was built at Fukushima, given there were fault lines there, is beyond me. But we're not talking about the old 1950s, 60s-style nuclear power station monstrosities. We're talking now about smaller, modular reactors. Uh, this is on a very, very different scale. And actually, Chernobyl aside, uh, which was basically inefficiency of an old, failing communist system, nuclear power has a very good safety record. Gordon asks, are there any circumstances where a cultural or religious belief should supersede UK law? No, none. Absolutely none. And I think this is one of the great cultural battles that we've got. We have always, as a country, welcomed people from all over the world with different religions and different cultures, and many of them have privately observed their own traditions, but publicly fitted in with our way of life and been accepted. And when you do that, when you do that, there's a very powerful argument to make that immigration into Britain can add significantly to the value of our life. But if you get cultures that come into Britain and say, no, 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 we're not obeying your law, we want our law to be superior, that route lies disaster, in my opinion. Yvonne, on email, asks, should all the Leave parties now come together to form an opposition party? Well, but the Conservative Party's become the Leave party. The Conservative Party became the Brexit party. Mrs May went, and we've now got a Brexit. I just think the problem is we seem to have a government that operates on what the focus group says, says what it thinks it needs to say to be popular today, doesn't plan ahead at all. Last one quickly, Victoria asks, Nigel, love the show, just wondered how you enjoy reading, and if so, do you have a favourite author? Sadly, I've got to tell you, my time for reading is very, very limited these days. Um, by the time I get to bed, I'm normally zonked. I'm back tomorrow. <laughs>